The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. So we're beginning the new year, taking a look at our sitting practice and understanding that what we do formally in sitting meditation practice is really meant to be a, um, a particular training that we can do all, all day long. It's not specific to sitting. It's just that the sitting practice or the sitting form makes it uh, a little bit easier. So I've been talking about it in terms of four steps, and I want to review them. We covered them briefly last week. I want to go in a little bit more depth this week. And then you can, just, you know, it's a short enough list. You can remember four aspects of practice. And then you can be on the lookout all day long about these four aspects. And the interesting thing is just remembering them, you'll notice that the mind begins to open in that direction. In the same way that if you're going about your day and you just remember gratitude, you'll just notice your mind experiences gratitude if you remember it. If you remember equanimity, your mind begins to experience it. It's not magical thinking. It's just that, I mean, there's a real, in some ways, thinking can cause a, a separation, a disconnect. Like we get lost in our thoughts, and in getting lost in our thoughts, we're disconnected from what we say is the way that it is. But on the other hand, thoughts, concepts, they represent something, too. It's not the same thing. The thought equanimity isn't the experience of equanimity. But when we bring to mind a thought like equanimity, or love, or peace, or the opposite end of the spectrum, hatred, irritation, embedded in the word or related to the word itself, the concept, the image, is in a sense a seed of that experience. So this is why, for example, the Buddhist teachings exist as, you know, a set of ideas. They're concepts. It seems ironic given that so much in Buddhist practice is about going beyond concept. But you can use concepts to support that work, and we can use concepts to get in the way of that work. So obviously now I'm talking in words and concepts, and we want to use words and concepts to redirect the mind, or even more substantially, to rewire the mind. Our mind, in a sense, is wired or in the habit of getting lost in thought, using thoughts to disconnect from the way that it is. But we can use thoughts to open the heart, to rediscover this possibility of the heart's release, the heart's full release. So the four sections, or four parts of practice, the first part is, in some ways, the most important, which is this flip from a mind or from a way of being where the mind is seeing its salvation, seeing what it wants in terms of ideas. 
Like even if I'm obsessed or thinking about the future, like tomorrow, and tomorrow when I get this, or I'll fix this, or I'll take care of this problem, it doesn't feel like that's a thought. It seems like my thoughts about Thursday is a reality. But Thursday isn't a reality. It's just a thought. So the reality is the thought. Thursday itself isn't a reality. It just exists as a thought in the mind now. So when we're, as we mostly are, lost in our thoughts about things, our thoughts about things now, our thoughts about things past, our thoughts about things future, we want to realize that there's another possibility. So the first movement, and in a sense the most important movement in sitting meditation practice and daily life practice is this dropping of our conceptual overlay and in a sense landing with things as they are, the present moment. So a more direct or immediate experience of the here and now. And one way, one easy way to remember that is it's just the body and mind being known. If you want to know what the present moment is, it's always this. It's never anything more than the mind and body being known. Sounds being known, sights being known, smells and tastes being known, sensations being known, and thoughts being known. So the five physical senses being known, and then mental activity being known. That's the present moment. So this is what we drop into. Our reality seems more substantial than that because we're confused by our concepts of things. I have an idea or a concept of tomorrow, a concept of the past, a concept of you, a concept of me. And those concepts and the way the mind gets identified or lost in those concepts, it makes the world seem big and solid and substantial. But the world of here and now, the present moment, in terms of a practice experience, is much more ephemeral. It's just the flitting experience of sound, sight, sensation, smell, and taste. The flitting, fluid experience of thoughts, like a thought, not in terms of the content of the thought, but the actual experience of a thought. You know, think the thought right now, pink elephant. And then just notice how, like, what is that thought, pink elephant? So you're not confused by the content of the thought, but just as a mental phenomenon, pink elephant. You see, it's not much of anything. Even things that appear to have more substance, like Mitt Romney, it seems like it has more substance, but actually the thought in Mitt Romney and any image, any emotional flavor that goes with it, it's not much of anything. My past, you know, my partner, whatever thought you might bring up, global warming. So thoughts apart from the content and the mind getting identified and lost in the content, the thought as a mental phenomenon, it's not much of anything. Same with the sound, like the sound of my voice. La, 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 la. <laughs> you know, 
that sound itself is very ephemeral. If I don't keep doing the la-la's, like law, you see how insubstantial. And like, even when the law is happening, what is that? It's not much of anything. Same with touch. You know, if you touch something now, I mean, obviously you are. Your seat's touching the chair or the cushion or hands are touching something. When you tune into sensation, apart from what you think that is, that I'm touching this, but just the experience of sensation itself, it's not much of anything. So the first part of practice is this radical turning from our concepts about things, our ideas about things, to the immediacy of sensation, thought, being known, body-mind being known. Now, obviously, in sitting practice, formal meditation practice, and daily life practice, this turning is something that's going to happen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, not just once. But it's a, it's a significant event. We want to appreciate this coming back. And it, in a very real way, it's not an exaggeration to say it's like two worlds, two parallel worlds. There's the world of um, taking concepts. See, it's not, it's, it's more than just thoughts. It's thoughts with a particular view or particular interpretation of thoughts. It's this confusion that thoughts as reality, the content of thoughts as reality versus the direct sensory experience as reality or as what we call the present moment. And the interesting thing is if we're interested in transforming our life, we have to make this transformation. We have to drop out of this particular world of being identified or trapped in concepts. A lot of meditation techniques are all about that supporting that movement. Like, for example, tonight I gave the suggestion that with each in-breath you repeat the word connecting, or maybe you use a different word like knowing, connecting, opening, right? So that particular word is just a reminder that in this moment, instead of the mind being identified with thought or concept, it can know a thought is arising. It can know the sensation of the breath is happening. It can know hearing is happening. Hearing is being known. So it can have that immediacy of the fluid, the changing sensory world. It can have that knowing, that awareness, that wisdom. And the real question you know, that, that inspires this movement is we can notice, and the more you do this, the easier it is. We can notice that the mind is attached, is identified to some story, some narrative, some drama. We can notice that over and over again. And eventually it begins to dawn on the mind, do I have to be identified with this drama? Or can it be put down? Do I need to be worrying about this, fixated on this, obsessing about this, wondering about this, judging this, or can it be dropped? Is it safe to drop our sense of meaning or belief? You know, whatever meaning or 
understanding description we have for ourselves about what's happening now, who I am, what's important, do we actually need that conceptual overlay? You see, in a moment, like this moment, we can actually be without having any meaning whatsoever about what this is. You see how it's not necessary to have any overlay of meaning. We can be at common ground listening to a talk without having the conceptual overlay on that common ground listening to a talk. We don't need the narrative in order to function appropriately in life. So this is the, this, we really need to get this movement and then we need to practice it over and over again. Every time we once again get caught up, get identified with our conceptual overlay, we need to remember there's an option here. And we don't need to turn the conceptual overlay into being something bad because that's just another, that's just an aspect of the conceptual overlay. Like I'm always caught up in thoughts and it's bad to be caught up in thoughts. You see, that's just part of being caught up in thought. We're identified with the thought of being, that being caught up in thoughts is bad. So we don't need to have any judgment whatsoever. It's really just learning this movement that they can be dropped. The conceptual overlay, the, not the conceptual overlay itself, but the identification, the minds being caught by it or confused by it or identified with it, that can be dropped and it's actually quite easy. It's mostly just a matter of remembering that it can be dropped. And then in a sense, the mind drops its fixation, its identification, and lands in the here and now, in this other world where sound, sight, sensation, smell, taste, and mental activity is seen for just what it is. It's mind-body being known. The movement of mind, you know, thought, for example, and the movement of body, right, the movement of body we mean by that we mean the movement of sound, the movement of sight, the movement of tactile experience. All of those things are moving, they're not a static thing. If the world feels static, it's because we're caught in concepts. Only concepts give the world our experience, the sense of being solid and static. So if ever you feel, I'm Mark, you know, or this is how it is, or you know, you're this, I'm that, or this is how the world is now. That just means that the mind is, to some degree, if not completely, wrapped up, identified with a particular view or concept. When things start feeling very alive and undefined, that means the mind is moving more in the direction of this immediate experience of mindfulness. Mindfulness means this simple but radical presence where the mind isn't confused by its concepts of things. It isn't confused by any meaning it's giving to things. Sound, sight, smell, touch, thought. So there may be meaning, but the mind isn't confused by the meaning. It's not grasping it or identifying with it. So you might think this is all a practice, but in a way it's just the first movement. We're just realizing the possibility of practice because practice is hanging out in that world of immediacy, that radical presence, because it leads to the, the, the mind itself being transformed. 
So once we have a sense of that world of that immediate presence, then the next step, and this doesn't need to take a long time, and I talked about this last week, the next step is from that perspective, what might real happiness be? So from our conceptual world, you know, when we're caught in the world of being identified with our thoughts about things, identified with our ideas about meaning, and uh, you know, like what's important, what's good, what's bad, then happiness has a particular texture quality. You know, now from this more conventional reality, happiness means getting enough money and getting respect from the people I care about and avoiding making a fool out of myself and staying healthy enough and but those are just ideas you know the idea of being healthy enough the idea of people respecting me those are just ideas that I have and then I need my experience to somehow fit my ideas and so that's my struggle but when I'm in that more immediate experience of being just present with sight and sound and taste and touch and smell and thought, that movement, that ever-moving, that ever-flowing stream of experience, mind-body experience, when I'm in that place, happiness has a different, it, it means a different thing. It's a, it, the aspiration to be happy looks different because then when we're in that world of movement, what would happiness look like? Well, it would look like not adding any friction to the movement of life, the movement of mind and body. Just letting things move freely, unobstructed, right? So that's when we aspire to be happy or aspire to be free or aspire to be loving. It means just letting nature, the nature of things, Dhamma, Letting it be what it is, radically trusting it. So the first part of practice is just getting a sense of the possibility of being mindful, that radical presence where everything's alive with movement. And then in that place, we reform the aspiration to be happy. Because the old one doesn't make sense anymore in this world. You know, and, and you don't even need to put it in words. It's more like an intuition that this heart, mind, body, whatever this life is, can release into the flow of things. That's what I aspire to, is to give this life, this body, mind, completely to the natural movement of things, the natural flow, the natural unfolding of things. That's the aspiration for real happiness, peace, union, Basically, whatever you think the heart desires, it is that opening or that surrendering to the movement of Dhamma, the way that it is, or you can say nature, the nature of things. Now, this is, of course, as I'm talking, it's on the level of concept. But when we're in the immediacy of the present moment and we start to notice how alive everything is with movement, mind, body, moving, then Take a moment just to remember this aspiration to be happy, to really give the heart, mind, and body to this movement freely. And then, then it starts to get clear what practice is going to look like, right? Because 
these first few things, like in terms of our formal meditation, they may just take a few seconds. You sit down, you stabilize the body, you know, and you're sitting in that a beautiful, noble posture where you're both relaxed and you're right in the middle, some alignment of the spine, you take a few breaths, and you're sort of dropping all the obsessions and the ways the mind is caught from the day. You're kind of shedding layer after layer of worry and anticipation and, oh, I did that, and just dropping, dropping, dropping into the experience of the body, into the experience of hearing the buzz of the sounds and the full presence. And you're kind of rediscovering the possibility of just being in the immediacy of the present moment, dropping the interpretation and the narrative, and realizing that aspiration to be happy, to fully release into the movement of life, the heart, the mind, to give itself completely, to trust completely the movement of things. And then so the third aspect of practice then is that training. Also, if that's the aspiration to not add friction to the natural movement of things, then let's train. So the training, the actual bulk of meditation and daily life practice is to some degree when we're in that place of being mindful, then we're remembering to be even more fully mindful, which just means to connect, to open. So in this regard, connecting isn't a static experience. Like sometimes we think I'm going to bring my attention to the breath, and then I got it. I've got the present moment. But the breath, or any aspect aspect of the present moment, you'll never find a thing. The present moment isn't a thing that can be grasped. What is it? It's a fluid stream. Whatever you pay attention to, whether you're paying attention to the breath, or paying attention to sound, or more generally just feeling the sensations in the body, if you're actually entering, opening to the present moment, you're opening to a fluid stream, an unceaselessly uh, changing flow of phenomena. So there's mindfulness can never be about grasping the object because before you can even get there to grasp it, it's already something different. It's like when something's a process, that means it's actually not a thing. How would you grasp it if it's a process, a changing process? You can't. But the mind is able to, in a sense, uh, release into that, into the knowing. So knowing itself, knowing the object, like knowing the breathing process or knowing the process of sitting. Sitting isn't a thing, it's a process of sensation, being known. So knowing itself is a stream, right? Because the object that's, if the object is a flow, then the subject's got to be a flow. Does that make sense? That subject can't be some static thing. I'm knowing the flow. Because the knowing itself is constantly unstable. It's moving to know the next thing, to know something that can't actually be grasped. So you see the connecting and the releasing are completely the same thing. You bring them, we use, you can use it strategically as two different things. Like I suggested, you know, where you can use this meditation word connecting when you're breathing in and releasing when you're breathing out. 
that in order to fully connect, you have to fully release. And it's in the releasing that you're actually able to connect, to be intimate with life, with the moment as it actually is. We don't actually connect without releasing. As long as the mind is in a fixed state, we're not connecting. So that's why at some point you might want to let go of those two meditation words, connecting, releasing. Because it might be a little too formal or too rigid of a practice, even though initially maybe just the ticket really supports the mind settling, the mind getting closer to the actuality of the present moment, which is this flow. So you use connecting and you really learn like, oh yeah, there is sound being known. There is sensation being known. There is the in-breath being known. And you can use the word releasing like to really see how the mind is tightening its body, how the mind is fixing itself on the object. Want to do it right. You know, that's a fixation. Oh, this is stupid. That's a fixation. Is this right? Doubt is a fixation. So the releasing just reminds us that all that stuff's extra. We don't need to have thoughts about what we're doing. We don't need to interpret it. We don't need to judge it. We don't need to compare it. We can just let it go, let it go, let it go. And it actually doesn't matter if the mind judges. What matters is are we willing to let it go? So whatever thought arises, that's fine. It can just be part of the flow of things. That thought comes, it goes. Judgment comes, it goes. Thinking you're the worst meditator in the world, that can come, it can go. So basically, we're offering everything to the stream, the stream of the present moment. And that's how we connect and release. So this third part of practice is really actualizing the aspiration to be free. We drop into the present moment, that's the first step. From that place of being more radically present, we re-understand uh, our aspiration to be happy. We understand happiness as not adding anything to flow, to the movement of things. The heart releasing, giving itself to nature to the, this natural, ephemeral flow of all things, mind and body. And then the practice is to actualize that aspiration to be happy by practicing being intimate with the flow, the present moment, and not resisting it, not tightening up around it, but deeply trusting it. Until you can do the fourth aspect of practice, which is the realization that trying to give the heart and mind and body to the flow actually gets in the way. So the fourth part of practice is teasing out the trying, taking the practice personally. So in the third part of practice, there's a sense of self who has some sense of this path of practice. I'm Mark, I've been practicing for a while, I understand that I need to drop into the present moment, I understand that when I drop into the present moment, things come alive with movement. From that place of movement, I understand that I really begin to understand that happiness is about trusting this movement, trusting the unceasing movement of all things, releasing into it. So I take up the personal training. I'm training my mind to connect with change, the movement of all things, and to trust it, to release into it. 
right? And I, when I get enough momentum, then I drop the sense of mark, seeing the change, and releasing into it. So you just trust. You don't have to do anything. And that's the hard part, is trusting that there isn't anybody who has to do anything. That's the fourth part of practice. Now, all four parts of practice we do formally when we're sitting. And it's not like we just do the first part at the first moment of our sit. But we might, whenever we get caught up in thought, then we have to do step one again, right? We have to drop back in. In a sense, we're re-remembering what mindfulness is, this possibility of being radically present with mind and body, discovering that it's alive with change. Everything's moving. And then from there, remembering this aspiration, happiness, freedom, is trusting this movement completely. And then doing the training. Okay, well, if I, trusting this movement completely means I have to be radically connected. So let, remem let me remember, connecting with the mind and body, releasing, connecting, releasing. Until that has enough momentum, then we drop any sense of doer, being the doer, doing the meditation. Make sense? <laughs> the, the Buddha, you know, he expressed this aspiration in a beautiful passage when he understood, you know, the limitations of leading a life based on our concepts of things. So I'll just read this. He said, practitioners, before my enlightenment, my awakening, while I was still only an unenlightened practitioner, I too, being myself subject to birth, sought what was also subject to birth. Being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilements, right, the different aspects of greed and aversion in the mind, sought what was also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilements. Then I considered thus, why, being myself subject to change, right, and to birth and to all these things, why would I seek that which is also conditioned? So what actually born gets born and dies? Where our concepts get born and die, right? Thinking that I'm a great person, I've had that thought, that has been born and then it died, you know, when I bumped up against experience that proved otherwise. Or we think we're lousy, you know, and that feeling, that experience gets born when certain experiences, when experiences a certain way, and then when people start loving us again, then that dies. So all the conceptions we've had about ourselves, conceptions we've had about other th other people, ideas we've had, we have or have had about the world, they have, those are the things that are born and die. So the Buddha is saying, why, given that this mind and body is something that comes and goes, do I seek things that also come and go? All my ideas about what's good, what's bad, they all come and go. They're all very fluid. He says, suppose being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, having understood the danger in what is subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Basically, you can't grasp it. You can't get any real security in it. Maybe I should seek the unborn, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme security from bondage. 
Right. So in Buddhism we call this the unconditioned, or the deathless, or Nibbana, the cessation of grasping, right? Entering the flow. Because when the mind, heart surrenders, releases into everything and nothing, sometimes in Buddhism we call it emptiness, because it's emptiness like, like a process is empty of being a thing, right? Because it's ever-changing. It's not really a thing. I mean, you can call it a thing. You can call a river a thing. You can call it the Mississippi River. But what is the Mississippi River? You know, it's a fluid, an ongoing, changing thing. So you can call human life human life. You know, you can give it a title. But it's this changing non-substantial thing. Same with Mark or you or any being, any person. It's the same idea. And we get confused by the label. When we call it Mark, in my case, the human mind can get confused by the conceptual overlay. And we could start taking what isn't really a thing to be a thing. And then we need to defend it. You know, and we need, we want to dress it up, decorate it, and then we're afraid if it's not a thing. So we have these existential crises of having to pretend that the thing that's not really a thing is actually really is a thing, right? And so we create things like religion and all kinds of beliefs that make this more than what it is, and it's very problematic. So perhaps, like the Buddha says, maybe I don't need that. Maybe I can see that which is on form. This is the particular training we're doing. Each time we're connecting and releasing, we're seeing, is there actually something for this heart, this mind, to release into so that it doesn't have to grasp what it can't actually grasp anyway? You know, try to create substance out of something that's alive with change, which is a, an eternally frustrating process to maintain a static sense of self. It's really frustrating for a static sense of what the world is or what's good or what's bad. All these, this, these different aspects of permanence that we, we work on patching up all the time. So, in the immediacy of our practice, we're really learning that the mind doesn't need that. Gil Fonstow, one of the wonderful uh, Vipassana teachers in this country, and uh, head of a wonderful community in the South Bay, in San Francisco, uh, south of San Francisco, he has this great line where he says, Buddhism is much more about, instead of being about what the meaning is, the meaning, the truth is, it's more about getting interested in the mind's need for meaning. Maybe the mind doesn't need meaning. It, doesn't it seem like we need the explanation? But do we actually need the explanation? Maybe happiness and wisdom and love is more about going beyond the seeming need for meaning, truth in a conceptual sense. Like, what God is the right God? You know, or 
all these sort of like we, what we want is solid ground but actually the Buddha might say something like our suffering comes from thinking happiness is about solid ground maybe happiness is making peace with no solid ground well, as one of my teachers and many of you have heard this story Joseph Goldstein says you know if you were flying in an airplane and somebody grabbed you and threw you out for a long time you might be freaking out about hitting the ground you know as you're falling through space but after a long enough time having not hit the ground you might learn to relax that maybe it's okay to be in a free fall a free fall is only a problem if there's something to hit and this is a powerful image if you can kind of play with it a little bit in your mind the reason we grasp onto fixed meaning that like fixed meaning of who I am or this is how the world is or this is what I think about you is we're afraid of free fall no meaning things being radically open and just moving but we don't need to be we can practice dropping that fixation the mind's habit of fixating and we can actually learn little by little through practice connecting and releasing we can learn this art of releasing just letting things move letting this life this personality the mind and body all things the weather our friends intestinal gas we can let everything just move it's so opposite of how we're trained that we have to hold we have to set fix define as if our personality becomes better when it's tight you know actually we learn so much more when we're allowing things to move freely it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes it's not all of a sudden we have a perfect personality that doesn't make mistakes but because the mind isn't um, obsessed with fixing things it can really learn about what works and doesn't work so I want to leave it here we'll be moving back to Jack Hornfield's book next week so I want to say 15 minutes or so to hear what people have to say about the talk tonight questions you might have experiences from your own life you might like to share with the group so feel free to speak up and please say your name what comes to mind yes um, I have a question about breathing. You talked about letting, just letting the body do the work of the breathing. And it sounds so simple, but I really struggle with it. It's like I, I'm, I'm there doing it to the point where I almost feel like I'm like hyperventilating a little bit. Yeah. Is that unusual? And do you have suggestions to release into it? It isn't easy just to let things happen. And that, and what, when you notice that, the first thing that would be appropriate is to let that move your heart in the direction of compassion. Like just to care about how something as easy, seemingly easy as breathing, that the mind, because of habit, can't just let it alone. Can't just let the body breathe. So you have to forgive yourself, and you have to be willing for the breath, the breathing process, to be constricted, to be tight. As long as you're not intentionally making it tight, intentionally controlling it, it may feel quite controlled for a long time or tight for a long time. So forgiving and trusting, even at 
a breath that appears to be tight, appears to be controlled, that's okay. And then there are a few other tricks. One is, sometimes the breath feels terribly tight when we're trying too hard. So maybe a more relaxed attention, you can just experiment. Like, and just use your body, that's a way to help the mind relax, is like, what kind of physical tension can you release? And that might help the mind's attention to the breathing process to also soften a little. The other trick is to feel the whole body generally. So instead of, in a sense, bringing your attention right to the breath, like right to the nostrils or right to the belly, if that's where you're feeling the breathing process, feel the body more generally throughout the body. And then you're still going to be aware of the breath. Or you can even breathe in, feel the whole body, breathing out, feeling the whole body. It's also appropriate to have the intention in the mind to relax. It's, it is a wholesome intention, so you don't need to be afraid. Remember, the third part of practice, the personality, in a sense, the ego, is getting involved. You know, Like, I'm getting involved to connect and to release. So part of the aspect of releasing is this intention to be relaxed. This, this isn't rock and science. This is easy. I'm just connecting with what's already true, the present moment, and letting it be. What could be easier? <laughs> so out of that understanding comes this intention, honey, you can relax. It's okay. And so just in a loving way, not like relax, but in a loving way, yeah, it's okay to relax. It's okay to just let it be. And patience. Just keep doing it again, starting over again. Everything softens with time. And we have to, we have to, or maybe another way of saying it, never underestimate how much patience. Because we've tied the heart, body, mind up into knots for so long that as we let things unwind, it's going to feel tight for a long time for most of us. Most people don't unwind quickly. The body, mind doesn't unwind quickly. So we need a lot of patience with the feeling of being tight. Actually, it's a step in the right direction to feel tight. A lot of people, a lot of us, we go through life, we don't feel tight, but it doesn't mean we're not tight. We're just so tight that the tightness is just, that the mind being tight is keeping the mind from actually connecting with how tight it is. So to begin to realize how tight we are is for most of us a huge step in the right direction. And often people have an awakening to how tight they are and they immediately run away from that experience not realizing what a powerfully healing experience that is. Thanks. Molly, is that what you said? Yeah, thanks, Molly. The thoughts, yes. I'm Kathy, and I'm struggling with how to get this question out, but in reflecting on uh, uh, going with the flow and, and releasing sort of the constructs and theories that we walk around with, and, you know, just I understand it doesn't mean that you're not going to be thinking and you know categorizing and judging, but letting it go. And I, I'm thinking about that. And uh, uh, but I, I sometimes struggle with feeling like I'm, I'm doing okay on that, but then having to react to circumstances that I'm in where it feels like I really do need to keep track of a lot of things that I wish that I could just let go. Like for example, in it complex work situations or something where I feel like I really have, if I'm not 
constantly reminding myself how all these other people think about things that I keep feeling like I can't do my job, for example, or something like right. that. So it's like I have to keep bringing to mind things that I wish I could just let go of, and I feel like it would be healthier for me to let go of. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how people can constructively deal with that. Yeah. I don't know if you caught, but uh, a few months ago there was an interesting article, at least in the New York Times, and I think it made the rounds because it was an article about some recent research about learning theory and uh, about how the mind learns. And it was contradicting this idea of like when you're studying, you know, you just really concentrate and you don't let anything interrupt your concentration. And they found that people, which I was so happy to read this because I'm one of these impulsive easily distracted people, that people that sort of pour their attention into something and then put their attention here and put their attention there and then return and, and return, that actually they're more creative, they've integrated the material more deeply, they're able to access and sort of work with that material better than the people that sort of were just with it without uh, breaks. So extracting from that point, which I think relates to what you what you said, um, it is possible in the midst of solving or dealing with important issues in our life that involve a lot of thinking and talking with people, it's possible to glance out the window and let the mind completely release into that experience, fully drop the drama. So that means you, there needs to be enough wisdom in the mind that knows that it's really safe to put it down for a while. That you'll pick it up in a moment, that's okay. But in this moment, it's really okay to put it down. So let's say you know we found out that an asteroid was going to hit the Earth on Saturday afternoon. So we have whatever that is, two days. And, and that would be it, you know. And it would be like, well, you might want to do some things between now and Saturday. But it would be totally appropriate to sort of enjoy the sunshine in one moment as you're walking to say goodbye to a friend or something like that. It's like we don't need, it wouldn't necessarily be useful or relevant in any way to just be tight thinking about all the things we should do before the world is destroyed. You see? But that's how we think. We think like when I have stuff on my to-do list, I need to be like this until there's no stuff on my to-do list. So we've just destined ourselves to a life of this. And we're going to be like that all year, all life long. And, uh, but we can learn this art of like really entering the drama and completely dropping it. And then entering and dropping. So the idea is, you know, the connecting and releasing means we drop the, this is the four steps, we drop the conceptual overlay, like I got a problem I have to solve, and we just notice the body is sitting and it's like this, breathing in is happening, it's like this, hearing is happening, it's like this. So we enter that immediate world of the present moment, a moment of mindfulness, we remember happiness is just about trusting the movement of all things, connecting and releasing into that, letting that happen naturally, effortlessly, you know, and then we enter the conventional world of problems of me and you and this and that, refreshed. So this is emptiness and form, you know, that play between the relative and the absolute. It's not about negating form, it's about 
putting it, in, it into perspective by opening to the unconditioned. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Those are help, helpful ideas, and I think, you know, I've had some experiences where I've been successful doing that, oh, actually, and it's kind of a, you know, it's such a, it's such a, every once in a while I've just experienced that, it's kind of a surprise where I, where I kind of, you know, I'm kind of happy with myself, where I kind of go, yeah. oh, you know, where I actually kind of notice that, I'm like, oh, you know, like, I, I've gone to a meeting before where I, I go to a lot of meetings, <laughs> where, um, where, I was, you know, where I felt kind of loose, you know, when I got there, and I realized how helpful that was because I didn't come in with a lot of preconceptions about how everyone was going to behave and you yeah. know, it wasn't getting defensive or anything. So, um, and so anyway, and I think that that people can sense that right away that you're really paying attention and you're not already, you know, in a mindset of how you know things will go. Yeah, and what you said too, I think it's important that you were surprised because. When we do uh, see the fruit of this kind of practice, it's surprising because it doesn't make sense conceptually that this would work. Because from the conceptual mode, what makes sense is to hold on to the conceptual mode. Even, you know, like I said earlier, Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, this is also a conceptual mode, but right? you know, we're all we're dealing with concepts here, and so it can even feel like we got to hold on to the teachings as a way, that's practice. But see, the practice is to let go of the teachings and to sort of, they aim the mind in a particular way, like to the present moment and releasing. So that's the purpose of the concept, is to bring us to the edge of practice and then to practice. And it's always surprising that it works. It's like, it's so, uh, generally what arises is a real sense of gratitude, like, wow. Happiness is truly available. Yeah, other thoughts people have? Yes? Hi, I'm Bridget. Um, when you were talking about connecting your heart and your mind, I kind of had this sense that I couldn't connect with my heart. So I was trying to like, really figure out like what my heart is. And I just, for a moment, I would try to envision it as being like a ball in my chest where I held my emotion. And then I would let go of that. And then it was, it was just like this, I can't figure out how to anchor in into like what a heart is. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a, you know, many lifetime project, but, but a worthy one. And it's, it's not that different than what we, what I've been talking about all night. It's like understanding what the heart is. But one way that, one way that I often talk about it is just like when we're happy, the heart is the experience of that happiness. It's the space in which that happiness is being known. When we're sad, when we're hurting, when we're suffering, the heart is the space where that suffering is. So, you know, like right now, we're either happy or not happy or in somewhere in between, but whatever we are experiencing in terms of happiness or unhappiness, that where we look, that's the heart. And in Buddhism, we don't distinguish the heart and mind. It's the same thing, you know. So it's, it's that experience of happiness. Is the mind or heart obstructed with unhappiness, or is it free of obstructions and therefore happy? Yeah, thanks for the question. Somebody ask a question? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes when I, I think it's just through my programming where I, um, I'm um, where there's some guilt about being God, you know, it's like it feels indifferent to be really 
in the present, like like uh, that I should care more about the world or care more about people. And I know you, you probably do more when you're more present, but there's some overlying like guilt or shame about not being more connected with the world or not being more worried, worrisome about the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that, Mark. And it's a little bit, I mean, this may be a little unfair, but, you know, if you're around a bunch of people who are gossiping, we feel bad not to be gossiping, (laughs) you know? And when we're around a lot of neurotic people who are thinking a lot about the way it is, life is, who we are, what's good, who's in, who's out, it feels bad not to be part of that world. So there is an actual grieving process. When we go that first step, you know, as I've described it, going from the world of concepts to an immediacy, there is that's a grieving process because as neurotic as it might be, as tight as it might be, this conceptual world is our world. This is what we know. This is where we exist together in a sense. And to sort of drop out of that it, there's a little grieving or a lot of grieving depending on the on the moment to go beyond that to drop it for a while but it's really important it's like very interesting going on residential retreats I've gone on some longer ones and I've been married for a long time now and you know just saying goodbye to my wife I'm not going to talk to you for three months you know we're not going to have any interaction for three months I'm not even going to be in the same state and and then just that whole process of you know being on a retreat where we're dropping into the present moment. I remember once, I, I forget where it was, but I had a picture of Wynn, my wife, and uh, I was in the middle of a three-month retreat or something, and I saw her picture. And I remember, because I was in the mode of just seeing things as they are, it was sort of like seeing but the concept, yeah, that's my wife, you know? It didn't come up. And it was so, uh, that was, uh, really disturbing like it brought up a lot of that grieving like my mind was in a place where it wasn't uh, wasn't easily reformulating the whole world of me being married to her but this it was just in the present moment and it was a very poignant moment of, of that letting go like it, now obviously you can come back into the relative world but when we're we're practicing dropping out and it really changes that our relationship to the relative world. So when we're reborn, in a sense, back into our concepts about things, it's like it, it has a different flavor. It's much lighter in that world. But, but it is poignant. It is a grieving process to let it go. So we don't want to be surprised by it. It may seem silly, but it's real. And that you'll find all kinds of funny reasons to avoid the practice, going on retreats, entering that immediate world at the present moment. So it's good to know why you're avoiding it, because you don't like the feeling of grieving, of letting go of what's known. But you can learn to actually appreciate that it's poignant. So you're moving it, instead of being afraid of it, you realize it's actually quite touching to leave it behind. Yeah, and we need to leave it here. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and take a couple breaths together. You can even release the need, the mind's fixation on concepts for a few seconds. Just this being known. 
appreciate the feeling maybe of being a little naked without the mind identified with this or that. Inspiring the practice is a way, a deep, powerful way of taking care of this heart, this life, and also taking care of all beings. So may our practice contribute to peace, and ease, and freedom from suffering. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Nice to be here together with everyone. Thanks to Jerry, our program host. Jerry Scott's my Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.